Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and how you have chosen to make yourself known to us by telling us who you are, telling us what you are doing to save people through your son Jesus, and showing us over and over again how much you love us by forgiving us and giving us eternal life. So we pray this morning as we look at your word that you would grab hold of our hearts for faith, encouragement, and to walk boldly with you till the day you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 is where we're going to be this morning, plus a number of other places, so you may want to have um, your page turning or device scrolling finger ready. Celebrating New Life in Jesus. That's the title of the message this morning, Celebrating New Life in Jesus. Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 5. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. That's a command. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival. Now, I don't know if you're like me. If somebody issues me a command and says, you must party. I was like, okay, you know, I'm down. Uh, that's what it's doing, telling us to celebrate the festival. But we have to understand what the festival is and what that means. How is it that God wants us to celebrate new life uh, in Jesus? If you have a birthday, say, for example, you have a birthday. I'm not saying you've celebrated a lot of birthdays. That's between you and the Lord. But let's say you have a birthday. Somebody might come up to you and, hey, your birthday is this week. What do you want to do? And you might say something like, I would like a cake. I would like ice cream. I would like expensive gifts. These are the things I would enjoy on my birthday. The expectation is the person that maybe cares for you in some manner, uh, wanting to celebrate your birthday, will keep in mind that which you want. They will, oh, they want a cake and ice cream and expensive gifts. Now, some of those that may be able to accommodate, some of them may tip of the hat. Uh, we'll get you gifts, maybe not expensive gifts. But it would be weird to do things opposite, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be weird to, well, we didn't have a cake, so we steamed some broccoli. I mean, that would be just rude. It's the opposite of cake. I can't think of something more opposite of cake than steamed broccoli. And, and instead of giving gifts, we brought you our bills to pay. We want you to pay our bills. It's the opposite. And so the person whose birthday it is, they would say, you're celebrating, but not with me. You're doing the, the opposite of what needs to be done. And so when the Bible tells us to celebrate the festival, and as we get into this festival, we're going to understand it's a celebration of the work of God to save people, the question has to be asked, what's the way in which God wants it celebrated? Because that's what has to be done. Since the party is God's, the party ought to be celebrated in a way in which God wants it celebrated. So let me give you the answers in case you're feeling sleepy. Celebrate new life in Jesus, accepting sin as good instead of as evil is opposite of how God has made us in Jesus. So he wants us to celebrate, firstly, by being rid of that which ruins us, sin. So one of the ways he's going to call us to celebrate, and we'll look at it in detail just momentarily, he's going to call us to celebrate new life in Jesus. The first way we do that is to be rid of be rid of that which ruins, which is sin. And accepting sin as good, instead of recognizing sin as evil, is the opposite of how God wants us to celebrate. It's the steamed broccoli of birthdays, is celebrating sin as good instead of evil. God, in fact, has saved us to be freed from sin and live a life of righteousness, not to be living a life of bondage. So, Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump? It's kind of a strange verse. First of all, boasting is not good. That seems obvious. I don't know why that would have to be a verse. But he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He's wanting the people of the church in Corinth to have their minds wander back to the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 12, the Bible describes a time when the people of Israel have been freed from bondage in Egypt. The people of Israel had lived in Egypt for over 400 years, and over the course of time, they had been subjected to bondage and mistreatment. God has intervened on their behalf using Moses and Aaron to deliver the people from bondage to Egypt. And of course, you remember 
what happened? There was the plagues that came. There was lots of frogs. The Nile was turned to blood. There was a great hailstorm. There was darkness. There was flies. There was these plagues, and with each subsequent plague, Egypt was drawn more into destruction, and the people of Israel were delivered. The final plague, of course, is the plague of death. And that is the, the plague where the angel of death came into Egypt and Israel both, and the firstborn of each household would die. It's, a, it's condemnation, it's judgment for sin. However, there was a way in which you could be delivered from this curse of death. And what the people were instructed to do was to bring a lamb into their household. They would bring it into their household for two weeks. Keep it in the home like a pet. And then on the night of the Passover, they were to slaughter that lamb and take the blood from this lamb and paint it on their doorway. Then they were going to take that lamb and roast it and eat it. They were to eat this lamb roasted along with unleavened bread. This was the way in which they were to put faith in God that he would deliver them from death. So what happened on that night, everybody who observed by faith God's plan of salvation, the angel of death, passed over them, did not visit them. So by faith, following God's prescription, they were delivered from death. Those who didn't follow this plan, Egypt primarily, they suffered terribly because their firstborn died. And so the bread they had to eat was unleavened. What is unleavened bread? Now, unleavened bread, we might assume, and rightly so, is bread that has a, an agent in it that makes it, um, well, poofy. They're like, yeah, makes it rise. Yeah, poofy, that's what I said. I think that's the technical term most bakers use. Put it in the thing and make it poofy. I think I've obviously worked many years as a baker and a candlestick maker. Um, the leavening agent, most of the time, is something we would be most familiar with. It would be really a, a sourdough starter. Yeast would, of course, be available, but not readily available. They couldn't roll up on Albertsons and buy some Fleischmann's or something like this. They had to, they had to you know, have a, a sourdough starter. I have never done a sourdough starter, but I think the concept is you get bread, dough, and let it rot. Am I close? And then make bread out of it. That sounds terrible. And that's why it tastes like sourdough, because it's sour and it's gross. So what they would do is they wouldn't take the starter and mix it in. They would just make bread without any kind of yeast and without the starter lump put into it. And of course, when you do that, it's, gonna, it's not going to rise. It's, gonna be a, 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 it's not going to really have any air pockets in it. So that's the bread they were to eat as an act of worship to God. As an act of worship to God. In fact, in Exodus 12, 33, God gives us a hint of what he was thinking about. So remember, the, the angel of death visited the people of Israel who uh, observed God's means of salvation by faith. They were delivered from death. The Egyptians, though, were visited by the angel of death, and so there was mourning all, all throughout Egypt. And the Egyptians asked Israel to leave quickly. Middle of the night, go, 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 go. The Egyptians, verse 33 of Exodus 12, were urgent with the people to send them out of their land in haste. They said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, before that sourdough starter was added, their kneading bowls bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. So God had told them to eat unleavened bread as a command, but what he did is he tied it in with the nature of their deliverance. If you're in a hurry to make bread, you can't let it rise, because proofing bread takes time. And they're not going to have time. So that means every time they were to celebrate Passover, they were to do it every single year. They were to eat unleavened bread. And what's that going to remind them of? It's going to remind them of how, her, how quickly they had to leave Egypt, how God had quickly delivered them. And so the, the symbol of the unleavened bread reminds them of their deliverance from slavery into freedom in God. It commemorates God's redemption of Israel from slavery to Egypt, and, and unleavened bread was a reminder of that. It made them recall the haste and the earnestness of their exit. And so what Paul does, if you'll go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, what Paul does is connect their sin and their boasting about sin. If you remember what's going on in their church, there's a man who was who is uh, committing sexual immorality, and they're not, not only are they not condemning it, they welcome it as though it's a good thing. 
that they're so high-minded and liberated that they're able to enjoy the pleasures of sin while at the same time enjoying relationship with God. And Paul is saying your boasting about this is, is wrong. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So he makes them think back to unleavened bread. So you've got your bread with no sourdough starter in it, right? Got your dough. Now you've got your sourdough starter. Probably smells gross. You take that starter and add it and you mix it up, right? And you mix that up. And then somebody says, well, I want unleavened bread. And so what you would say to them is say, because you've got this all mixed up, you say, well, just eat the part that doesn't have the leavening in it. Right? Just eat that part. Is that possible? No, that's what he's saying. He's saying, no, it's not. You're, you're being ridiculous if you think, oh, I can celebrate God's freedom from slavery while being enslaved. It's just as weird for you to also say, I can eat unleavened bread that has leavening in it. He said, that doesn't make any sense. You're trying to celebrate with God in a way, number one, that doesn't make any sense. Secondly, it's not what God called for. He called for deliver, a, a commemoration of deliverance from slavery, not a commemoration that you can be re-enslaved. He's saying here, sin has this a nefarious way of working within the body of Christ. It can't be compartmentalized. It can't be set aside. We can do these things good, and this thing we can accept as okay, even though it's not. He's saying that's not, that's not possible. This is hard for us to understand because we live in a different time and place. We live in a time today where people generally want to live their own lives independently. We, we generally, our culture today is a, a culture of being autonomous. We somewhat depend on one another, but not to the way they, that people did so long ago. And, we, and it's hard for us to imagine that our lives depend on how other people are living their lives. Some of us might even read an old Bible story like the story of Achan and sort of feel it's weird. Do you remember Achan? No? Okay, let me highlight it for you. They marched around Jericho a whole bunch of times. Jericho fell. God gave them this one command. Don't take any of the stuff. Of the stuff, you are to take none of it. Of the stuff you find, take none, burn all. How much can you take? None. If you take none, have you taken the right amount? Yes. Did you get it? How much did Achan take? Some. That's all you need to know. And so everybody said... Uh, no big deal, let's go fight AI. AI was a small little town, kind of like Central Point. Um, probably fewer guns, let's be honest. <laughs> let's just be honest with it. It's such a point, right? All right, so anyway, they roll up on AI and they get their, their heinies handed to them. And so God punishes who for Achan's sin? Everybody. Doesn't that bother, does that bother you? Of course it does. You're a 21st century Christian. A first century believer would, would read that. Someone like the Apostle Paul or the people in Corinth or the people in Ephesus would read that same story and what would they say? Of course, of course the whole people would be, of course they would. They're the people. That, so we need to recognize we see things differently. And Paul is calling us to that. He's saying the body of believers, you have a, an acceptance of sin in your midst. You, you can't act as though it doesn't affect all the things. And you can't celebrate new life in Jesus while at the same time saying sin is good. And that was what was, what was happening in the city of Corinth. And, and Paul is suggesting to us and the church in Corinth, the acceptance of sin in the body of believers affects the whole body of believers, not just the one. It, it affects everybody. So there's a, a, a call to the body of believers to say we want to live celebrating New life in Jesus, that means we take responsibility for one another and a willingness when needed to say, hey, you know what? What you're doing there isn't right. You need to come correct on that. And we need to have a willingness to do that when necessary. Now, Paul uses this leavening just to kind of balance this a little bit, not only to mention, talk about sin in the midst of the body of Christ, but also religious obligation. Galatians chapter 5, verse 9 I'm going to read beginning in verse 7. He says this to the Galatians. The Galatians were trying to earn God's favor by being religious. The Galatians were trying to earn God's favor by being religious, and Paul thought that was dumb. 
He said, why would you want to earn God's favor by being religious when Jesus earned God's favor for you by dying? You were running well, he says in verse 7. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. They were wanting to encourage their men in their church when they got saved, they should get circumcised. And he is saying, just like he is saying sin will ruin a body of believers, like leavening leavens a whole lump, he's also saying religious obligation and legalism, where we try to tell people to earn God's favor through behavior, will also ruin the whole lump. The the idea is this. What happens within the body of believers, we're in this together. We're all in this together. Go back to 1 Corinthians 5, 6. If you're still there, good. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Long story short, when you look at Passover, we were not saved from slavery to sin to go back to sin, just like Israel was not freed from slavery to Egypt so that they could freely go back to Egypt. The goal was freedom from sin. Look with me at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I think it'll be up on the screen if we have them. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So what Paul is telling us here is, since God has saved us by the power of Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, the way in which we worship, how do we celebrate the festival, is to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. That is, since God has saved us from sin and death, the duty of the believer to worship God is not merely in church when we sing songs and not merely in church when we listen to a sermon or pray, but the duty of the believer is to recognize that our whole life has been redeemed from slavery into life in God. And so therefore, our life is being found in Him, and our life then is an act of worship. So we worship God each and every day when we make decisions about what we're going to do as a believer, on Monday when we go to work, or when we go to school, or when we're in our homes. And he says what we should be thinking is, as someone who has been saved from slavery to sin and death, how do I worship God acceptably? He tells us, holy, holy and acceptable to God should be our lives. Verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So remember back to Egypt. This is where we're going. People of Israel leave Egypt. God redeems them out of Egypt through the Passover. Remember? Where did they go next? They went on a walk through a Red Sea. Bible tells us, Paul tells us in other places, that is their, they were baptized into Moses, walked through the Red Sea, and then where did they go? Cancun. <laughs> right? They're free. They can do whatever they want. Let's go on vacay. No, where'd they go? Mount Sinai, so God could tell them, now that you are my people, I want to tell you how to relate to me properly. How you live with me in covenant relationship. And then then what they did from there, the goal is, having been saved out of slavery, how do we live in covenant relationship with God where we serve Him with obedience and experience the blessing of God's kindness? That's the goal. You need to understand. There's two options that the Bible provides to the people of Israel. Slavery in Egypt or life worshiping God through covenant relationship. Those are the two options. We want options three, four, and five. Deliverance from Egypt, take a left at Red Sea, and go up to the Mediterranean Sea and get a village. Get a villa, maybe enjoy a beverage with an umbrella, something. We want to leave what enslaves us, not to go to God, but to go to ourselves. That's what every, that's what every human wants to do. And what the, the, the festival is telling us, no, to be saved out of slavery to Egypt, or in our case from sin and death, is to what? be purchased into relationship with God. Those are the two options that are afforded us. That's the options we have afforded ourselves through our rebellion. 
It's not to be saved from sin to ourselves. It's saved from sin to worship and serve God. Or if that, we don't like that option, fine, good for you. Then you stay enslaved to sin, slave in, uh, sin and death. Those are the two options the Bible provides. And what the Bible is telling us is if we are going to be saved out of Egypt, saved out of sin and death, then let's celebrate. Not like the people in Corinth who wanted to leaven their bread with sin, but say, no, we're freed from it. Let's serve God with our whole lives. Look at verse 7a, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Start at the end of that verse. You really are what? Unleavened. So what he's saying is Christ has made you uh, righteous. That, and we know this from what the Bible teaches. When you put your faith in Christ, we receive from Christ his righteousness. It, it goes both ways. When we put our faith in Christ, our sin and our death and our shame and our guilt go from us onto him. And he bears that for us. Amen. That's awesome, isn't it? That's good news, by the way. Uh, it's, it's better news if you're a terrible sinner. If, you're, if you don't sin that much, it's not great news. Um, just so you know, y'all sin really bad, but some of you are convinced you don't. Um, what the Bible calls those? Pharisees. Okay. Um, so, your shame and guilt and sin go unto Jesus. Yay. Now, better than that, it's not just that. His righteousness is, is on us. So, we receive by faith His, uh, His righteousness. So, our identity, someone who has put their faith in Jesus for salvation, who we are as people, we are identified then as, as righteous as Christ. That's the reality of us as we stand before God our Father. That's why the book of Hebrews says someone in Christ can boldly walk into the throne room of God and say, hey, what's up? No problem, no worries. God is not going to smite us or smote us or whatever. He is going to receive us as his sons and his daughters because we have been made righteous. Now, having that as our identity, he says, now live like that. That's why he is saying here, so cleanse out the old leaven. So you certainly, by putting your faith in Jesus, have been made righteous. However, maybe your testimony this week is you didn't necessarily, on all occasions, live righteous. Is that, is that got a little quiet? There might have been a few occasions this week, having been unleavened, been made righteous, you did not live consistent with who you are. You live like someone who is unrighteous or someone who is, is unleavened. And so what Paul is saying is take initiative, take action, on purpose, do what needs to be done that as, as, as much as it depends on us, the leaven of sin is removed from our own lives personally and from the life of the body of Christ. We do the work of living in the reality that Jesus has already done all the work. But we, but we still do it on purpose. We still say, I'm not going to take sin casually. I'm going to think about it. If there is things in your life that you struggle with sin-wise, you might think through your day, you know what, I'm going to do what I can to avoid the areas where I might be exposed to that. I might do what needs to be done. I might talk to a buddy of mine, give him a phone call and say, hey, there's an area of my life I, I could really use some prayer and maybe once a week you call me up and check on me, just see how I'm doing. Just a little bit of a, a nudge and accountability. Now, sometimes accountability goes from once into two where you're doing something and now you're lying because your buddy's calling you and you say, no, I'm good. Don't do that. So what he's saying is, is think about it. What does it mean to live unleavened have al having already been made unleavened? Then he's adding this broadly to the church here in verse 7. He's saying, also, we need to take responsibility for one another. We need to be willing. When we know somebody in loving relationship, not some stranger you don't know, when you know somebody in loving relationship and you know they're fostering something in their life that is the opposite of what it means to celebrate new life in Jesus, where you come up to that guy and you say, listen, buddy, what you're doing here isn't right. What you're doing here is sideways of the gospel. And you say, well, I don't want to have that conversation. Let me, I'm just checking. Oh, that's right. The Bible is all about what you want. No, it's not. It's about what needs to be done. And sometimes, some, and some of us have had somebody do this before, where somebody walks up to us, puts their arm around them. I've had this happen once or twice. One of my besetting sins, I'll, I'll, be, I'll tell you now because you all know it. 
One of my besetting sins, I can be a bit mouthy. I, I, I can be a bit lippy. I can be, uh, what do they call it when I was a smart aleck? I think that's a polite way uh, of saying it. Um, I can be sarcastic. I can make jokes that belittle other people. It's rude. It's not nice. Oh, it's hilarious though, right? It gets people laughing. It's funny. And every now and then, and even occasionally in modern times, this isn't just when I was a kid, somebody come and put their arm around me and say, you know what? You got to check it a little bit. Letting it run a little. And what do you do when somebody says that to you? What's your first reaction? You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you're the lippy one. Maybe you should get some thick skin. The problem isn't me. The problem is you. That's what we do. That's our instant reaction. So just know that's going to happen. Instantly, there's a defense mechanism where you want to tell this guy what he ought to be. And you, and you can get after him. And then after a little while, you start to stew on it. And then what happens? Okay. Yeah. And maybe a little while later... If God is so gracious, you may even go to that buddy and say, you know what, I really appreciate that. I really needed that. So if you have close relationships in your life, this is one of the ways we can work as a body of believers to work the leaven out, is when somebody approaches us and shares something with us, is to have that willing heart to hear and and acknowledge the places where our hearts need to be sharpened. And that's where brothers and sisters of the Lord can do that. Secondly, Sometimes it means we have to put on the big boy and the big girl pants and go up to somebody we care about and let them know we may be seeing something that they're blind to. And that can be hard. But that may be what they, what they need. Identify how do we work out the leaven of sin in our own hearts and how do we work that out in the community is by being honest with each other, having a place that is so filled with the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can own and readily admit when things aren't right because we know Jesus and one another still accept us. So celebrate new life in Jesus. Be rid of that which ruins. But secondly, let's look at verses 7 and 8, the second half of 7 and 8. This isn't simply about sinful behavior. This is really an issue of the heart. And this is the bigger issue here that we need to recognize. Do we, in our heart, have a desire to have meaningful, substantive substantive relationship with the Lord? To meaningfully engage from the heart God's ways in our life. So celebrating new life in Jesus, enjoy Jesus' life from the heart. Let me read again verse 7-8. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed... Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Celebrate new life in Jesus. Enjoy Jesus' life from the heart. Enjoy Jesus' life from the heart. I don't know how you motivate yourself to do stuff you don't like. Some people give themselves rewards. I had a professor once tell me this. He was writing a book, and I said, well, how do you motivate yourself to write a book? Because that seems boring. I had read one or two of his books. I didn't tell him this, but I've read your books. They're boring to read. It must be worse to write them. That's what I was thinking. I mean, they were academic books, so they were designed to be boring because that's the whole point of going to school is to read stuff nobody reads. So I asked him, well, how do you motivate yourself to read a book, write a book? He said, what I do is at the end of each chapter, I let myself have a piece of pie. Brilliant. No, it's stuck with me ever since. If I have a job to do, there is food involved. You know, I just tell myself, if I get the lawn mode, I can have a piece of pie, or I can have some ice cream, or a Big Mac, or whatever it might be. It just stuck with me. It stuck with me uh, ever since college. You know, if I really don't want to do something, just tell myself I can have some food. Okay, well, so then you take up exercising. If I go to the gym for 30 minutes on the way home, I can order a double filet of fish. <laughs> you know, that might be counterproductive. It might be counterproductive. And so what the, the, the Bible is calling us here is to be motivated for God's things, but not to be motivated to do things that are the opposite. He's calling us from the heart to want to do God's things. So that's what some of us, well, if I can drag myself to church, then I can do my own thing for the rest of the day. Well, we've just undone the concept of what it means to come together and worship God. We've told God, God, I'm going to give you this amount of my time and so that I get the rest. And, that, and that's counterproductive to what it means to worship God. The way we celebrate Jesus and what he has done for us is that from our heart, the motivation is Jesus to know him, that from our heart we want to live for him, we want to express our love and worship toward him, and we want to seek a relationship with him that lasts, 
not a relationship that we can uh, box up into particular times of the day or year. 7b, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So this is the motivation the Bible gives us for worshiping God, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Remember, in the original Passover, they had the lamb in the house for 14 days. The idea was to create a relationship with, between the family and the lamb, where the lamb was now seen as really what we'd call a pet. That was the concept, to bring the lamb into the home, not just merely a sheep that was grabbed from the, from the sheepfold last minute. The idea was to have a lamb that after two weeks is now bumping around on your ankles while you're preparing food and you're giving him little treats and snacks. And, and at night when everybody gets into uh, the bedroll, the lamb is probably going to lay down next to somebody for the night. And after two weeks, now there is a connection of affection with this lamb. So you can imagine the slaughtering, how hard that would be. Of course, that would be terrible. That was the idea. The idea was to have a connection, that there is a, connection, a love connection between the one who is being sacrificed and the people who is receiving the benefits of the sacrifice. And that's what is to be moved in our hearts when Jesus is sacrificed. Not some far distant notion of a historical Jesus but the, but the idea that someone who is with us and among us and loves us has sacrificed himself for us. And, and just like the Passover lamb, this lamb, Jesus, he steps into our place. So he takes on himself the death that should have been put onto us. That's what he did. Of course, we know Jesus was not killed. Jesus offered up his own life. The point of what Jesus has done for us through the death, his burial, and his resurrection is to give us relational closeness with, with God, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the concept. The idea of the sacrifice is not merely to atone for our sin, although it does do that, doesn't it? It's not merely to give us eternal life. This is a problem that has come out of sort of what I'd call early 50s fundamentalism where the primary reason people would get saved in the 1950s was so that you go to heaven. That's the idea. Now, do you get to go to heaven if you're saved? That's not a hard question. A little pause there. Yes! And that's good for us. We like the heaven thing. But if we think the only reason Jesus died on the cross for us was to get us into heaven, we've missed so much. He died on the cross so we could have relational closeness, a a family kind of relationship with God right now. And if you only got saved for something that's coming someday, you're missing the idea of the Passover lamb. Jesus has died for us to provide us freedom from slavery. Just like the Passover, he delivers us out of our Egypt, which is sin and death, into freedom in God. That we can now, by a covenant relationship, have relationship and worship with God. Not only that, but Jesus sustains us. What did they do with the Passover lamb after it was sacrificed? They ate it. And what does Jesus say in John chapter 6? Whoever will follow me will have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. In fact, we celebrate this with communion. We say Jesus, our Passover lamb, his blood is that which contains our covenant His promise to us that we have forgiveness of sin is that cup. And then we eat the bread saying Jesus is the one who sustains us. He is our meal. He is all that we we need for life. The whole idea of all of this, the unleavened bread and his sacrifice in our new life, is that our heart would be warmed and softened to relationship with God. That we would celebrate what God has given us from a heart that says, I want to hang out with God. If I, if I had a free afternoon and I had nothing else going on, I would choose God. I would, and, and if I have things going on, I would, I would choose that God goes with me. And it's a heart that is moved towards and pursues toward the Lord. A heart of, of affection and love. Look at Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, 
Father. So every single person who has put their faith in Christ for salvation receives and is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is a spirit that affirms with our heart and with God's heart that we are God's children. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters, sons and daughters of God. The relationship is defined by the Holy Spirit who is in us, and it's a family relationship. You did not receive a, a spirit of slavery. So he said, and doesn't that seem obvious? But he has to say that. The spirit that is in you is a spirit of family connection with God, not a spirit that returns you to Egypt. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the relational connection, the way God has set this up is that the Holy Spirit indwells us, and now we have a relationship with God that is child to father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are the children of God. If children, then heirs. Okay, not only are we God's children, we get all this stuff. We're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Have you, are you reading this? This seems like a good deal to me. Well, provided that we suffer with him. Oh, well, you knew there was a catch. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. All he's calling us to do between the here and the there is to live like Jesus. Jesus who loved the Father and was willing to walk a life of humble service to others until he got home. And now all he's telling us is, brothers, sisters, that's that's what we do. We receive a spirit of freedom, a spirit of sonship, so we walk the here to there just like our brother Jesus did. Humble service, knowing that from time to time that's going to mean difficulty and suffering. But we know what's coming. Glory with our our brother Jesus and our, our Father. The purpose of the Spirit in our lives is freedom from sin and freedom to humble service to the glory of God our Father. And he's calling us to yearn for freedom from sin and humble service to God because we love him like we love a father. Not calling us to do it out of duty, not calling us to do that out of some sort of sense of religious obligation. This is a sense of a child who has a deep affection for their dad and saying, I know what he likes, and I want to do that kind of stuff. It's an authentic heart of devotion. We just had Valentine's Day. Some of you are just now realizing this, and you're toast. I got nothing for you. You're, you're, you're baked. Uh, there's nothing for you. But you could imagine uh, a husband or a fiancé or a boyfriend or a girlfriend providing a Valentine's card and maybe a box of chocolates or maybe a rose or maybe some jewelry. I don't know. People do that. And saying, I, just to be honest, I didn't want to do this. I think this holiday is created by Hallmark. We all know that. And uh, so I am giving you these Valentine's gifts out of a sense of obligation, because I know if you don't, you're going to be mad. So here you go. How's that going to go? And some of you, I can see you, especially in the back, I see you. You're like, I don't see the problem. I don't know. It worked fine. It didn't work. You thought it worked. It didn't work. Your day is coming. See, we don't like that. Even the notion of somebody doing a relational act towards us, out of a sense of obligation feels weird. When we were kids, this happened all the time. Go tell your brother sorry. Right? Go tell your brother sorry. And you're walking over there. Oh, I'm going to say the words. But there, you could do a thing with your eyes and your lows. And if you had your back to the mom, you could say it in such a way he knew. Not only were you not sorry, but there is more coming. There is, this, is, this is not over by a long shot. And, and God is saying many of us are navigating our relationship with him that way. There is no sense of heart. There is no sense of love. There is no sense of, I just want to be with you. There is no sense of, I'm kind of into you, God. There is just simply a sense of, I got no other options. I got to go to church. My wife makes me. My husband makes me. I got to take the kids to church or they won't turn out right. I went to church my whole life. You might want to keep that in mind. (laughs) The turnout thing is not a guarantee. The Passover celebration is a celebration of I love God and I want my heart moved to serve the Lord. That's the unleavened heart. 
It's not emotionalism. It doesn't mean you weep every time you think about God. All of us have different temperaments. But there's a sense of repentance that should occur in our lives if we have no sense of relational affection for God. That there should be a place where we go home and say, I don't know what's going on, God, but I do not have positive vibes for you. And, and, and the Bible says, why are we living that way? This all flows from a, a, a life of affection for one another. Religious duty isn't what it, it takes. I talked to an old pastor. He was a, a professor in a school that I knew, and I was talking to him, and he was a part of a church in Boston. He says, look, our church in Boston, it is full every Sunday. We turn people away every Sunday. They're not adding a second service. It, turn them away. Go to another church. We're full. He said, every year, our people outgive our budget by 10 or 15%. They got a budget, they just give more. He said, I, my, his guess was 50% of that church are unsaved. He said, no, it's a culture of church. People in Boston go to church. This is what they do. And so you, you think, oh, I could show up for church. I'm doing the religious thing. Look, here, we got lots of people who are really religious. If you got no affection for God, you're missing something. Either you have seared your conscience toward God or you need to look back and say, have I taken time? Have I actually moved by faith into a redeemed relationship with God or am I playing religious games? Don't play religious games. It's not fun. I want to read uh, three verses from the Older Testament and then we'll close because I wanted you to know that this celebration of new life in Jesus where we enjoy a life in Jesus from the heart is what everybody in the Old Testament was looking forward to, and we have the privilege of having it. Let's start with Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming. Jeremiah said, days are coming. They're not here yet for Jeremiah, but they are for us. The Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a neighbor teach, teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, I'll forgive their sin, and I'll remember their sin no more. He says, a day is coming when the Spirit will be in people and they will want to serve God from the heart. When is that day? It's now. Jeremiah was looking forward to it. And he said, man, that's where Jesus said, look, prophets of the past, he said this to his disciples, there were people in the past who, who yearned to see the things you see. And that's what Jeremiah was one of those people. Man, there's going to be a day when people have the Spirit that moves them to connection with God from the heart. Man, what a great day that would be. Isaiah 29, 13. If I can find it. Flip side of that. The Lord said, This people draw near me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So these are religious people. But their hearts are far. They know how to follow the rules. They can check the boxes. They can keep their nose clean. They can be respectful. People in the religious community love them. They're probably big supporters of the religious community. But their heart, no interest in God. No heart for God. And Paul is telling us that's no way to live. To celebrate the festival is to have a heart bent towards God. Ezekiel 33. Some of you have never read Ezekiel. You ought to. It is crazy. I wish they would make a movie about that book. It's hard, though. The CGI would be tricky. It is weird. So some of you are thinking, well, look, I listen to sermons, and I get it. Good for you. Um, here's how it is. As for you, son of man, this is God talking to Ezekiel. Your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, they say to one another, each to his brother, come, Hear what the word is that comes from the Lord and they, they come to you. He's talking again to the prophet. As people come and they sit before you as my people and, and they hear what you say, but they won't do it. 
For with their lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and come it will, they will know that a prophet has been among them. He's saying, look, we can listen to all our favorite preachers, we can listen to all our favorite podcasts, read lots of fantastic books. As a body of believers living in the time we live in, we have more resources afforded to us than any other generation. And he said, look, you can do all that stuff, but if you don't move towards obedience towards God from the heart, you've missed it. You've missed it. And that's what was happening in Ezekiel's day. He'd, he'd talk, and there'd be a big crowd laid out in front of him, and boy, this guy can really bring it. Bring the heat, Zeke. And then they would all just scatter about to live their lives as they see fit. And God says to those people, a day is coming, Ezekiel, well, they'll reflect back on this on the day of the Lord, and they'll say, we should have been paying attention to what was being told from the Word. And they're going to say, on that day, we missed it. Celebrate new life in Jesus. Be rid of what ruins. Enjoy life with Jesus from the heart. First thing. You have to be free from sin and death. If you have not put your faith in Jesus for salvation and forgiveness of your sins, you are still enslaved to sin and death. The only way to be delivered from the bondage of sin, the shame and guilt of sin, and the certainty of separation from God one day is to trust Jesus. When you do that, no matter what you've done, God provides to you his forgiveness for everything you have done and everything you will do. You will be provided eternal life, heaven, yay, and be called into meaningful relationship with God here and now. Without that, everything else we've talked about this morning is a waste of time. Second thing, if you are a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit in you, I should tell you this because it's the Bible. You can overcome sin by the Spirit. You can overcome sin by the Spirit. The question is not whether or not we can overcome sin. The question is not whether we want to. One of the things you ought to do, because it's very difficult to overcome sin. I don't know if you noticed that. You know, is there some things you really struggle with? Okay, I'll take that as a yes. One of the things you can do, especially in those areas where you struggle, is, is don't look at your life today compared to tomorrow, but look at your life today compared to a year ago. Maybe there are certain areas of your life you say, I still struggle, but I don't struggle the way I did a year ago. The Lord has shown me uh, by His Spirit in improvement. That's also one of the ways we can really encourage one another. If you have seen an area that a brother or sister in their life has really grown, one of the ways we can really encourage one another is to, is to say, I have really seen God working in you. You're different now than when I first met you. I see God working himself. That would be a great encouragement. But we must not give in to sin and say, you know what, I can't get over it. Never mind, I just can't be done. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you have everything you need to say no to sin and yes to godliness. The question is whether or not we want to turn from sin that brings us pleasure. Finally this, and I'll end with this, I promise. I want you to evaluate your relationship with God. And here are the evaluative descriptors okay is your relationship with God like a chore think of the chores you have to do it's February I had to do the pruning right that's why my back hurts today but it's a chore is that your relationship with God it's got to be done but I wish I didn't have to is your relationship with God a responsibility a certain sense, that's kind of like a chore, but with nobility. I'm doing the responsible thing, and I'm loving Jesus. Try that on your wife. See how that goes. Is, that, is, is, is your relationship with God a, a dutiful responsibility? Good Americans follow Jesus. Is your relationship with God a necessity? You realize you're a sinner. You realize you're toast without God, but you wish there were other options. You like the idea of forgiveness, you like the idea of heaven, but man, he's kind of a pain. Is your relationship with God a chore? Is it a responsibility? Or is it a necessity that you just wish you didn't have to grapple with? 
Would any of us describe our relationship with God as a celebration of worship? A joyous relationship. That's what God wants for us. That's his relationship with us. It's a celebration of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And it's a a joyous relationship where he has deep desire for connection and affection with and for us. And all he's calling us to do is say, I want you to approach your relationship with me in the same way. A celebration of God who saved us from sin. A relationship characterized by joy and acceptance and love, even during times of suffering, conviction, and difficulty. Celebrate new life with Jesus. Be rid of what ruins and enjoy Jesus' life from the heart. Jesus, we thank you for saving sinners like us. We thank you, Jesus, that you went the whole way. You took us all the way out of sin and you gave us eternal life. God, we thank you that you are not willing to compromise and give us things that will lead to our own destruction. But you call us to be rid of those things in our life that will ruin us. God, as we bring these sorts of things up, it always brings to our hearts and minds those things in our life that we wish weren't there. God, I pray in this moment you would give us the boldness to confess and repent. Hand those things to you. And then, God, give us wisdom, insight, discernment on what we need to change in the routines of our life that our pathways don't go by those places of disobedience anymore. God, I also pray for those of us, especially, God, I might suggest those of us who have known you for many years, maybe our whole lives, and our relationship with you is stale. There's a sense of obligation There's a sense of trying to keep you from being grumpy. God, would you forgive us and give us the power of your spirit to once again step into a relationship marked by joyous celebration and worship where from a heart of affection and love we walk with you because we wouldn't want to walk anywhere else. We thank you for Jesus and can't wait till you return. Until he does, Lord, Give us the strength to endure to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.